0: Welcome to the Conceive Baby Podcast. My name's Tasha Jennings, fertility naturopath and nutritionist. In each episode, I share with you my best fertility tips and introduce you to world leading fertility experts to help you improve your fertility well being to create your healthy pregnancy. Welcome to today's episode of the Conceive Baby podcast. I'm fertility naturopath Tasha Jennings and today I'm speaking with an amazing scientist and researcher whose research is really changing the landscape of IVF and infertility treatment. His research into oocyte in vitro maturation is enabling a form of infertility treatment which is less expensive, less injections, fewer side effects and less expensive than traditional IVF. Professor Robert Giltrist is an NHMRC investigator and research lead at the Discipline of Women's Health at the University of New South Wales. Professor Gilchrist is an oocyte biologist and manages an applied research program with the objectives of improving oocyte in vitro maturation or IVM. Dr. Gilchrist also studies new biomarkers of oocyte quality. In 2006, he won the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryologist Established Scientist Award and in 2009, the Award for Excellence in Reproductive Biology from the Society of Reproduction biology. In 2013, he was made a fellow of the Society of Reproductive Biology and is currently the director of Oocyte Biology Research Unit. He has also published 142 peer-reviewed papers, research reviews, chapters, and is a prominent international speaker, having received more than 60 invitations to give plenary symposium keynote presentations across the globe.
1: Welcome, Robert. Thank you very much. Thank you for that kind introduction.
0: Well, that is an amazing resume uh, that you have. And we just spoke off there about your research into particularly reproductive biology and how it is influencing um, the treatments we're receiving today. So, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you become a scientist and researcher, and I guess specifically into um, reproductive biology?
1: Thank you. So um, yes, I'm a scientist, and um, I have, for all of my life, really had a had a really uh, an interest in reproductive biology and fertility that actually dates back to um, when I was at high school. Um, <clears throat> I have a, a background really in animal breeding, um, and animal biotechnology, and uh, so that led me to go to university. Um, And uh, my major was in uh, animal biotechnology and uh, animal breeding. Um, And for those who may or may not know the history of IVF and reproductive medicine, it all originated in animals. Um, So much of the technologies that we use for for IVF and fertility diagnosis actually comes from animal breeding um, originally. So all the big breakthroughs. I've been uh, originally pioneered in in uh, domestic animal research. And that's, that's my background. Um, so after finishing my degree, um, I uh, then wanted to continue. So I did a master's and a PhD um, in, in Germany, in fact, um, but really with a with a conservation biology bent. So actually, we were doing research in um, endangered monkeys. Um, and using reproductive technologies such as IVF to try to um, preserve um, these endangered animals. IVF has a very important part in in conservation as well. Wow. Um, Then I moved back to Australia um, and I was at the University of Adelaide for 18 years um, in a a clinical department. um, And there my research... Uh, became more and more focused on medicine. So I moved away really from um, some of the basic science and some of the animal breeding, so to speak, and moved Mm. more and more into human reproductive medicine. Um, And then in 2014, uh, I was recruited to the University of New South Wales in Sydney. Um, And now we're doing probably more, I'm doing more translational and clinical research than, than ever.
0: Well, wow. it's exciting research, I guess, for for women in general. Obviously, as we discussed, it's giving more options and more patient-friendly um, options for women for inf- infertility treatment. And your research specifically looks at the oocyte. And, and for those out there that are thinking, okay, what are we talking about when we're talking about an oocyte? Let's go back to basics. What are we talking about when we're talking about the oocyte and its maturation?
1: So the oocyte is, is the immature egg. Um so it's it's just another, it's just a scientific term for the egg. Right. And um the immature egg is referred to as the oocyte, and the mature egg is referred to as a, as an ovum. But it's the egg. Um it's pretty simple for reproduction. You need <laughs> sperm and eggs. Uh and the egg is um is the oocyte. So the the really special thing about the oocyte is that it's um it's extremely rate limiting it's the it's the fundamental currency the fundamental unit of fertility uh for a couple Mm. so um, what i mean by that is that the egg is is essential it's the um fundamental unit that that supports early development of the embryo um and eggs are in limited supply um so i guess every woman who's going through ivf knows that better than anyone Um, Mm. So, women run out of eggs, um, and oocyte number and oocyte quality deteriorate precipitously from about thirty-eight years of age, and of course uh, it then falls off a cliff at about forty-two. And um, so, you know, the 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 oocyte is absolutely fundamentally rate limiting for fertility, like no other. Um, uh, cell or reproductive process, for that matter. And a really great example of this is the fact that as a woman uh, ages, her fertility drops dramatically after 40. Um, and, you know, she, women have effectively become infertile by the age of about 45, completely infertile. Whereas a 45-year-old woman that, that can have a donor oocyte, which invariably means from a young donor, um, say for example, a donor who's in her twenties has no loss of fertility at all. Mm. Um, so this just demonstrates that that oocyte number numbers and oocyte quality is absolutely fundamentally rate limiting to a couple's fertility. So talk
0: about your research into this. Yeah, this amazing oocyte um, that we that we have. Um what's the difference in standard IVF and your in vitro maturation technique that you are using for the maturation of the oocyte?
1: Okay. So IVM, so in vitro maturation, which is abbreviated as IVM, is is has many parallels and has has many uh, similarities to IVF. Obviously, normal in a normal cycle, a woman ovulates one egg. That's the normal situation. Now that's that That's inconvenient and impractical for a woman undergoing IVF. Mm. For a woman to undergo a successful IVF cycle, the clinic and the laboratory need as many oocytes as possible, more or less. And to achieve that, women have to go through a very, very arduous process of of hormone stimulation that can range anything from, from a week to two or even three weeks of various hormone regimes to, to stimulate, to sorry to stimulate the multiple growth of to the sorry second to stimulate the growth of multiple eggs and follicles um, such that the clinic can collect say let's say six or ten or 15 uh oocytes to give the woman a chance for IVF. now this is obviously very unnatural um those follicles exist in the ovary but they're Pushed and driven by the hormones to to grow and mature, such that they can uh, be collected and used for IVF. So that's that's the normal process in IVF. In vitro maturation uh, capitalizes on the same small follicles um, that are that are uh, stimulated by the drugs that are used in IVF. So what we're doing in the case of IVM is instead of treating the patient with very large doses of hormones to produce and grow those follicles and, and produce eggs, we simply collect those oocytes from the small follicles at a much earlier stage. So we, they, they naturally exist in the ovary in both an IVM and an IVF cycle. But in an IVM cycle, we collect them at an underdeveloped, at an immature stage, whereas in IVF, they are matured by the hormones over this one to two week period. Mm. So the essential fundamental difference between IVM and IVF is that that in IVM, we are collecting oocytes from small follicles and that they are immature. Whereas in IVF, they are mature. So that means that when we collect these immature oocytes, we need a special um, procedure in the laboratory where we mature the, the eggs, the oocytes in vitro. And that takes about 48 hours uh, for the egg to go from an immature to a mature state, which is then the oocyte is in exactly the same developmental state as it would be in the case of an IVF patient that's just had an egg collection. And thereafter, the procedure is identical. So we have, in both cases, we have mature oocytes. They are fertilised in vitro. You grow the embryos through to either day three or day five and everything else is identical.
0: So for the woman... What would this entail in regards to injections? Obviously, as you mentioned, for IVF, there is considerable injections, and I know I have many patients going through a number of cycles. There's a risk of OHSS because it is so intense with the um, medication regime in a lot of cases. What's the difference for the woman going through IVM by comparison?
1: Okay, so the, the great advantage of IVM over IVF, there are upsides and downsides to everything, but with a great advantage Uh, over of IVM over IVF is the fact that we we stimulate the patient very in a very minimal way so typically an IVM patient will have just two days of injections Um, so that's literally two shots of injections and then she will have um, the egg collection two days thereafter and because the woman is only getting two days of injection there is absolutely no risk of OHSS. There's never, ever been a case of ovarian hyperstimulation in IVM. And the wonderful thing that that brings is that that actually there's no danger and therefore the patient doesn't need to be monitored. So one of the reasons why patients are monitored quite closely in IVF is to, one, to see how the patient's responding to the drugs, but secondly, also as a precautionary means to make sure that the patient doesn't hyperstimulate. This means a couple of things. So, in the IVM cycle, it's much much shorter. It's only a few days. Um, the patient doesn't need any so-called down regulation, which most IVF patients have one form or another of down regulation. Um, there are usually only two blood tests, typically only one or two ultrasounds, two injections, and then the pickup. So the ultrasound monitoring, the blood test monitoring and the injections are all substantially reduced in IVM compared to IVF.
0: And in regards to, I was looking through your papers, in regards to fresh versus frozen transfers, is that option available on both sides with IBM? Can they choose fresh or frozen? Is one better outcomes?
1: The short answer is no. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the... so one of the problems or one of the, let's say, one of the scenarios in the case of an IVF cycle is that the very large levels of drugs that are used and the very high levels of estrogen that a woman therefore experiences in an IVF cycle is a good thing for the development of the endometrium. So the lining of the, of the, um, of the womb. Um, so to have an embryo transferred and have implantation, you need to have a very receptive and very ready uterus. and. That's driven by hormones. That's the Mm -hmm. normal natural process. So you need a lot of estrogen and a lot of progesterone for the endometrium to be in a receptive state. And that doesn't happen in IVM because in IVM, all the hormone levels are very low. There's no aggressive stimulation. So um, in an IVM cycle, the endometrium is not ready for an embryo transfer because the patient hasn't been stimulated. So. You might see in the literature over many, many years, many researchers have tried their hardest to be able to do a fresh embryo transfer cycle for Mm. IVM. And the bottom line is it hasn't worked. Mm. They have tried everything. Um, And... More recently, we've done some some randomised controlled trials of of, or there's been some trials of um, patients having a fresh versus frozen embryo transfer in an IVM cycle. And the pregnancy rates are are just chalk and cheese. They are dramatically different, meaning that the the pregnancy rate is quite acceptable if if it's in a frozen embryo transfer cycle, whereas the pregnancy rates from IVM are quite poor in a fresh embryo transfer cycle. So it's almost not ethical anymore to offer a frozen embryo transfer cycle for IVM. So most clinics now have abandoned um, fresh embryo transfer cycles for IVM.
0: Yep. Well, I know a lot of people are leaning towards the freezing for a lot of other reasons anyway, so I think that's yeah. always a good good option uh, for people. So we've talked about the positive impact. Obviously, there's less injections; it's going to be less invasive for the for the um, person. It's going to be more cost efficient as well because there's less injections and less um, monitoring. What are the drawbacks of IVM versus your IVF technology currently?
1: So I think the, the number one issue we need to address always is safety. Is it safe? Mm-hmm. And so this is not a drawback. This is a plus. Um, there, there are no safety concerns with IBM. Um, there has obviously this is a well, it's not actually a new technology. It's been around. For as long as IVF, believe it or not. So I've
0: read that in the literature. The 1960s, I don't even predates that actually. Yeah, but in fact, yeah. it does predate
1: IVF. So the, the the gentleman who won the Nobel Prize for uh, IVF, which is Professor Bob Edwards, uh, who was in Cambridge in the mid 1960s, he was the pioneer. He's the granddaddy of IVF. Um, originally tried IVM. Mm. Um, so his his background. Um was, was in our uh, biology and uh, and IVM. And he originally tried uh, to get IVF going using IVM rather than um, rather than patient stimulation. So IVM basically was developed in parallel with IVF, uh, but IVF has um, been the predominant form of treatment until now. So um, you know, we now have we now have we don't know exactly, but let's say approximately ten thousand IVM babies on the planet. Yeah. Um, that's an approximate approximation. Um, yep. There are no registries, and in all the studies that have been done in terms of um, retrospective follow up on babies, the development of the children, the the imprinting analysis, the genetic analysis, everything seems to be fine uh, with IVM kids. So there's no uh, indication. That IVM is in any way not safe. So that's um, that's firstly uh, that's firstly very encouraging, obviously. Mm. So in terms of to come to your question, which was about the drawbacks, the the principal drawback from IVM is in in, in total in 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 a, if we are including all the oocytes that are collected um, from an IVM versus an IVF cycle. The, in the patients that have an IVM cycle, they usually have slightly fewer embryos at the end of the day. Mm. So obviously you only need, in theory, one embryo to get pregnant, but in reality you usually need more than one embryo to get pregnant. And yeah. when you, when a patient goes through IVM versus IVF, the IVF patients typically have one or two more embryos frozen in the freezer, yeah. which means that in the long term, um, they have an overall higher what's called a cumulative live birth rate.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so let's just say that a, a patient produces only, um, now let's say, let's say if a patient has an, uh, an IVF embryo transfer or an IVM embryo transfer, the chances of pregnancy is the same. Right. So the clinical pregnancy rate and the mm-hmm. live birth rate from IVF and IVM is more or less the same, and it's typically around 35%. Mm. So clinical pregnancy rate of 35%, live birth rate of around 30%. And for IVM and IVF, it's the same. However, the IVF patient is likely to have one or two more embryos in the in the freezer. Yeah. Which means that if that embryo doesn't, doesn't hold and the patient goes back for a subsequent embryo transfer round, um, eventually the IVF patient is more likely to have a, a pregnancy than the IVM because they'll have more embryos in the freezer. Yeah, so that's the that's the main downside, and um, so it's a the consideration of whether to perform IVM versus IVF is a trade off. It's a slight trade off between overall long term success rate versus the um, intensity or the aggressiveness of the treatment. So IVM is more patient friendly. It's cheaper. It's easier. It's faster. Um, Whereas IVF is is none of those, but the overall uh, long term take home baby rate, if you like, is higher with IVF than IVM. Yeah. So so the other um, consideration is not a downside, but the other yeah. important consideration is that IVM is not suitable for many for many infertile patients. So because we are collecting oocytes from small follicles and we're not stimulating the ovary to any great extent, um, the Patient needs to have a high number of follicles on her ovaries, so that's called an antral follicle count, which is usually done by ultrasound. And uh, some women have a very high antral follicle count, and some women have a very low antral follicle count. And Mm. antral follicle count is a reflection of ovarian reserve. So some women naturally have a very high antral follicle count. This is usually associated with a high uh, level of serum AMH, and this is commonly associated with women who have ovarian cysts, so PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. So PCOS patients are the primary patient population that are very well indicated, clinically indicated for IVM. Mm. Now, there are two reasons. One is that they naturally have a high antral follicle count, and two, they are hypersensitive to the hormone stimulation that is used in IVF. So PCOS patients are sometimes difficult to stimulate and very difficult to manage for the, uh, their, their stimulation and their cycle um, and have some risk of ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Mm. So these, these are the women for which IVM mm. is very well suited.
0: Yeah. Yep. That was going to be my next question, really. Who is this suited for? And I guess who is it not suited for? It does sound like I guess if it is more age-related infertility, low AMH, this is possibly not um, the best option. But if it is a PCOS-type picture where there is a high count and infertility for other reasons, then this obviously would be a really viable and and sounds like almost preferable option in a lot of regards.
1: Yeah, I mean, so... That's right so so it's very well suited to to uh, women who have Pcos and women who have um, who have a reasonable prospect of mm. um, so so what I'm saying is it's not not well suited to women who have poor prognosis yeah um, so for example if you have a couple where the diagnosis of infertility is male factor infertility so for mm. example a very low sperm count or some other sperm defect but the woman in fact has no fertility issues whatsoever, then this this is a good example where actually the woman does not need to be treated in an aggressive manner to simply generate the oocytes. And and if she has a reasonable number of follicles, then she's a good candidate for uh, for IVM. So because IVM is very much dependent on the antral follicle count and AMH, it's actually not very well suited for age-related infertility. Mm. So the typical cutoff for entry into an IVM program is 38. Yeah. Um, so women who have pro- poor prognosis who are in their forties, IVM is not well suited. I mean, the other reason is that women are in their forties um, who are undergoing infertility treatment; their time is running out, um, mm. and so therefore they need to use a more urgent fertility uh, treatment such as IVF, one one that has a um, a better chance of generating more embryos. The other very important application for IVM, and this is really coming to the fore now much more these days is cancer patients mm. now cancer patients of course are a completely different uh, type of patient than an infertile patient usually
2: mm.
1: cancer patients of course can be very young they can be they can even be teenagers they can even be girls now there are a couple of things in relation to cancer patients usually when a patient is diagnosed with cancer. Um, they usually don't necessarily have much time to have. um, So let's, sorry, I'll go back a step. When a patient is diagnosed with cancer, if she's going to have general whole body uh, chemotherapy or radiation of the pelvic region, this is likely to cause quite serious damage to the ovary. And it may actually, of course, um, kill all the oocytes and cause uh, sterility. Mm um so a patient who's diagnosed with cancer and it depends on what type of cancer and it also depends on what type of treatment she's going to have has to make some very urgent and quite serious fertility decisions even though she may have not ever thought about her fertility if she's 18 years old Mm. um and of course if she's a minor then she needs to do that in conjunction with her parents who are obviously not thinking about her fertility prior to that moment so if the woman, if the girl or the woman has to have her, uh, her tumor removed at very short notice followed by chemo or radiotherapy, she has to make fertility decisions, fertility preservation decisions before she starts chemo or radio. And often there's not enough time for that. Mm. So one of the problems with IVF in relation to these patients is that IVF takes several weeks um, at least. And, of course, you know, if we're, of course, the patient is, very busy worrying about their cancer first and foremost, um, not Mm. their fertility. So in some cases, these patients never make it to a fertility specialist. So because the patient doesn't have much time, quite often a full IVF cycle, which might take several weeks, even if you do a short cycle of one week, may not be enough time. But what what typically happens in this situation is they go through a a short IVF stimulation cycle, collect the eggs and freeze them, or alternatively freeze an embryo. There are another group of patients who have oestrogen-sensitive cancers, for example, breast cancer patients. Mm. Um, and IVF, of course, produces very, very high levels of circulating estrogen. That's, mm. that's part and parcel of IVF. And this is potentially quite dangerous to patients that have breast cancer. Mm. So in all these situations, IVM is ideal because IVM, an IVM cycle can be done quickly. But quite importantly, it can be done at very, very short notice. Yeah. Now we mentioned earlier that patients typically need two days of stimulation. In fact, we are work, in fact, patients can have no stimulation whatsoever. And we're working on um, being able to uh, offer that treatment for patients. Um, so what I mean by that is a patient can be diagnosed with cancer, see a fertility specialist, and literally have an egg pickup. The next day, and that can never happen with IVF. So, yeah. so that's one very important application of IVM. If I, would you want me to continue? Because there's another related one.
0: No, I go. Yes, yeah, please do.
1: <laughs> so, a second application, which is sort of related, is is that quite often patients will have ovarian tissue or even their whole ovaries removed for fertility preservation, and this is in a in a case where. Patients, for whatever reason, are not under, not able to undergo egg collection for fertility preservation. So mm. in some cases, cancer patients will have ovarian tissue removed and frozen. So the idea there is that you preserve what's called the ovarian cortex, which is the region of the ovary that contains the ovarian reserve, the primordial follicles, and that's put in the freezer. And then many years later, the patient will have that ovarian tissue transplanted back. That's a big ordeal and a big complex procedure that's that's quite difficult to achieve but nonetheless it works the important thing here is when you remove the ovary for the purposes of tissue preservation you are prior preserving the very very outside periphery of the ovary only which contains the primordial follicles and typically the rest of the ovary is discarded believe it or not the rest of the ovary the center part of the ovary which is called the medulla contains small follicles which contain eggs that can be used for IVM. So the other very important application of IVM is to use it in conjunction with ovarian tissue cryopreservation where the tissue, the the ovarian cortex, is frozen for subsequent transplantation, but the the rest of the ovary, we collect the oocytes that are in the larger follicles um, and do IVM. So we recently had a case of a patient where we did exactly this. So we collected, um, in fact, she had both ovaries removed. We, I can't remember exactly, but we collected, collected roughly 40 uh, eggs from this ovary for IVM. So these are from large follicles, and we ended up generating, I think it was seven or eight blastocysts, which she now has frozen. That's a wonderful
0: outcome.
1: Yes, so it's Mm. a wonderful outcome. This patient, um, you know, was in a fairly dire situation. Mm. Um, She had been diagnosed with a cancer and needed some very, very urgent short-notice fertility preservation. So there are basically three main applications from IVM. One is um, in cancer patients for an egg pickup. The second one is cancer patients where we have ovarian tissue collected and the third is that for the treatment of infertility, mainly PCOS patients.
2: Yeah,
0: so PCOS, or as you said, if there's nothing particularly wrong and it's male factor, um, that's a really option as well because it sounds like women would be able to handle more IVM. I've seen a lot of patients go through, you know, 7, 8, sometimes 12 or more IVF cycles, which really takes a toll, but IVM seems to be a lot gentler and would be able to go through more collections. Yes. Yep. Yeah. So anyone who's thinking this really sounds exciting and would like to access this treatment, where can it be accessed at the moment?
1: So it's a new technique. I mean, well, Mm. sorry. I mean, IVM is an old technique, but quite importantly, we have, we and others around the world have produced a new variant of IVM, a new, a new version of IVM. So the old IVM, um, is sort of on the way out. And the new version of IVM, you can call it IVM 2.0 if you wish, <laughs> um, It's t- the actual u- name for it is Capacitation IVM. So it's sometimes abbreviated as Kappa IVM, um, is just being rolled out in Australia. So nice. it's currently the, the technique Uh, I I worked on together with other scientists around the world, was pioneered in Brussels. And then the large clinical trials were done in Saigon in Vietnam. So those two units are are offering the treatment routinely. And we are just in the process of setting this up here in Australia. So the first clinic, we are already performing IVM, but the first clinic that will perform Kappa IVM is at the Royal Hospital for Women in Randwick in Sydney. Um, The likely second clinic will be City Fertility, which is at circular key. Mm -hmm. Uh, in sydney and the third clinic or in fact they might all be done roughly at the same time will be um fertility specialists in perth so they will be the probably the the first and the first round of clinics that will offer this procedure
0: yeah well hopefully we'll see see more of it in future so, I really appreciate you taking the time to share this amazing research with us today. And I know you've just come back from an overseas trip, you've had a big deadline, so it's really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule. For anyone who is is wanting to know more about this, okay, where can we leave them? I'll certainly put links um, to the re- research papers um, on the the show notes. But, and that's at TashaJennings.com.au. Uh, You'll find all the show notes and, and the links to Robert's research. Is there anything you'd like to leave women with today?
1: Look, I think... Uh you know, I think it's uh it's a it's a very tough journey and there are many uh difficult situations <clears throat> that infertile couples have to face. But there are uh new and emerging technologies all the time. It's difficult to navigate what's worth doing and what's not. You know, I think IVM is suitable for a small subset of um of infertile patients, mainly PCRS patients, and I hope that we will in the future be able to uh, bring this new advance to to these women and hopefully give you a, a more gentler and safer means of um, treating your infertility. And um, I hope we can get there.
0: Exciting times ahead. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. And I hope to speak to you in future about this uh, research again.
1: Thank you. Bye for now. Thank you very much. Bye.
0: I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Conceive Baby podcast. To help you move forward on your journey to pregnancy, I've created your free fertility checklist for you. This checklist provides simple swaps you can make that can have a significant impact on your chances of conceiving and carrying your healthy baby. So be sure to head to conceivebaby.com.au forward slash checklist to
2: download your free fertility checklist today.